Welcome to Careers in Discovery, your window into the world of leaders in pharma and biotech. Brought to you by Singular Talent, making hiring better for organizations involved in drug discovery and R&D. Tim Newton is the CEO and founder of Reflection Therapeutics, a Cambridge biotech using the power of T-cells to fight neuroinflammatory conditions. Tim talked to us about the light bulb moment that led to him leaving academia, how to use your network to transition to industry, and some key pieces of advice for new biotech entrepreneurs. This week on Careers in Discovery, we're with Tim Newton of Reflection Therapeutics. Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Good to see you. Um, Tim, we always start by talking a bit about the work you're doing now. So please tell us a bit more about Reflection Therapeutics and, and the work you're doing there. Fantastic. Yeah. So Reflection Therapeutics is based at the Babraham Research Campus, uh, which is very close to Cambridge mm-hmm. in the UK, where we're based. And we're really interested in the problem of neuroinflammation. So neuroinflammation can be found in lots of different conditions, whether that's a disease like Alzheimer's or multiple sclerosis, mm-hmm. all the way through to things like traumatic brain injury or stroke. And whatever the upstream insult is, whether it's a, a disease, a neurodegenerative disease or, or an impact to the brain, yeah. you end up with this out of control and really inappropriate inflammatory response that cuts connections between brain cells and, and leads to kind of functional decline. Mm-hmm. So how do you tackle that? And you might think, oh, great, well, it's an inflammatory problem. We can just deliver systemic anti-inflammatory drugs to these patients. But the problem you'll end up there is that you often have elderly, frail, vulnerable patient populations. You really don't want to just obliterate their immune responses. Yes. And also this inflammation is, is, as you can imagine, really potent and really focused. So you need something really potent and really focused to deal with it. Mm so yeah, so what Reflection Therapeutics does is it finds a really potent and really focused solution, which is to take regulatory T-cells, which is part of our body's own immune system, and then target them to the brain. Um, yes. So a, a little bit on regulatory T-cells, they're very important for recognising yourself. So as, you're, as both of us are sitting here right now, we have regulatory T-cells circulating mm-hmm. in our body, and they keep recognizing it's us and saying to the rest of the immune system, hey guys, don't don't attack this pancreas, it's part of you, and don't attack the heart, it's part of you. And when that fails, well, that's when you get um, autoimmune diseases like diabetes, where the right. immune system does attack the pancreas because it, it's forgotten to realize that the pancreas is part of us. Mm-hmm. Um, so regulatory T-cells are incredibly powerful in this way, but we can combine them with another really powerful technology, which is chimeric antigen receptor technology. Yes. Now we've we've heard about this in cancer, right? Yes. RT. Yeah. Um, but if you take those chimeric antigen receptors and you put them onto regulatory D cells, well, then suddenly we have a targeted system that can go to specific places in the body and suppress inflammation really strongly in that one location. Mm-hmm. Um, so at reflection therapeutics, we've developed targeting systems as well as stability and survival systems into these regulatory T cells so that they can go into the brain, the spinal cord and skeletal muscle and protect us from neuroinflammation. So our our first indication is going to be motor neuron disease, 
right it's a really really horrible condition there's there's nothing really available for those patients and there's a two to five year survival window mm-hmm. and the hope is eventually we're going to be putting these cells into motor neuron disease patients and protecting their nervous system from attack yes interesting <laughs> so as you say you know you there's there's a lot of um car t companies for cancer but the, this this is one of a few, um, only a few that I know of that are, that are applying the technology in a different area. Um, so it's really interesting to hear about. And I would imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, that the targeting is perhaps a little more challenging because we're looking at neuroinflammation and the, the sensitivity of the areas that you, of the body that you're operating in. That's exactly right. Because, you know, what do you do? You could target against a particular tissue type, mm. but if you do that, you're targeting every single area of the tissue, including areas that aren't inflamed. Or you could target inflammatory markers, but you know, you might have neurodegeneration going on, but you also might have an inflamed knee or something going wrong in your gut. And Mm. you know, elderly patient populations, again, they're gonna have inflammation occurring um, in all sorts of areas of their body. And you don't want to be your therapy to go into completely the wrong direction. So the targeting here, especially for a neuroinflammatory condition, is really quite challenging. Yes. Um, so that's where our kind of proprietary, you know, behind a <laughs> behind a black box kind of thing technology exists. We we've developed a targeting technology that allows us to really precisely target inflamed neurons and to be able to suppress inflammation in those locations. Um, and that's really exciting. Um, mm. And The nice thing about that technology is that we can platform it out so that eventually one day we hope to go beyond the nervous system and target lots of other inflammatory conditions in the body. Yeah, I see. That that was going to be my next question, actually, because (laughs) it's interesting. You you sort of you're looking at conditions then that um, the immune system obviously keeps us very safe from a lot of things. But we're looking at places where it's it's not doing that and augmenting it. And so I imagine, yes, there's a lot of extra or a lot of further implications of that beyond. Exactly. And when you think, you know, again, this is kind of an advanced therapies advantage. Mm. Once you, once you're not working with small molecules or, or antibodies anymore, if you've built your platform, you've got your T cell engineering working well, and you've got your targeting system working well, and then you can iterate on that platform. Well, then suddenly with, with very much the same product with a few minor tweaks, you can platform out into multiple conditions and have this much broader impact um, beyond just one organ system. And yes. that's really exciting because then the, the reach and the number of patients you can help gets so much bigger. Yes, absolutely. And, and tell us a bit, Tim, about um, both what you're doing personally there today and, and your journey with the organization. Because, um, you know, I know you're the, the CEO, you were the founder of the company. T- tell us a bit about that that last few years absolutely yeah so um we started in october 2018 Mm -hmm. um and i would i founded the company because i had this this real drive to treat neuroinflammation and really believed that car t-rex were the way to do that now at that time there really wasn't anyone out there doing doing this kind of work and the field has really accelerated since then which is really exciting to see so um the work I've been doing since then is fundraising. We've raised grants, mm. we've raised private investment um, in order to be able to get preliminary data to prove this idea is working. 
Um, so the team team has grown um, since then. We have uh, my co-founder Oliver Odeck has joined the company, um, and chief operating officer, and she's really fantastic. And then we we've had a suite of really amazing people work with us in the labs, um, people visiting, people collaborating with us, and that that's been amazing too. Um, but the journey has really been one of getting grant funding in um, and getting money in to really get in vivo proof of concept data. Yes, up. and that's. We're in a really exciting space because we're going to be getting our in vivo proof of concept in April. Ah, so great. We've gone from an idea and a vision to actually having a product going into an ALS model mouse that's going to be giving us proof of concept data um, within a few weeks from now. Mm. So, so that's been a really exciting um, kind of progression. Absolutely. So we, we've caught you at a good time. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Good. Good. And, and I'm interested to come back to the the origins of the company and, and yes. the journey with it, um, because I think, um, you know, we were talking just off air about um, about origin stories and, and the progress and things like that. So we, we will come back to that. But let's let's go back a little bit further, first of all. Yeah. Um, and, and just talk about your your career prior to reflection therapeutics. So um, first of all, why science for you, Tim? And then why why drug discovery, drug development? Tell us about that sort of initial part of that journey. Absolutely. So, I mean, I, I remember um, right back at school, um, I came from a you know, normal state comprehensive school. And if you were good at the arts, mm. it was expected if you're a smart kid, well, you'll go and be a lawyer. And if you're right. good at the sciences and you're a smart kid, well, you're going to be a doctor. Mm -hmm. So I can't I can't count the number of times in sixth form the number of people said, but why aren't you doing medicine? Why why aren't you? We just can't understand this. Why aren't you going and doing medicine? Yes. Um, and it was never an option for me because I just I loved the idea of going off to university to do biochemistry because I found it interesting. Okay. And I I think if you press any scientist on this for long enough. Yeah. <laughs> the honest answer you'd get back is it's just cool isn't it it's just really <laughs> fascinating yes <laughs> and it's really fun um so yeah so i went off um very fortunately got into oxford and, and got to study biochemistry for four years there mm. which involved a lot of lab placements which is amazing i did two summer projects and then a 20-week um, research project in my last year so i kind of racked up roughly about a year's worth of, of lab work in that degree and it was brilliant. Like mm. I, I loved, I loved it, and kind of a really um, interesting kind of thing I got to do there was um, kind of competition experiments. I was, I was doing like this thing on like different bacteria and um, working out their DNA replication pathway in response to a particular antibiotic. Yes, I was inducing mutations in the bacteria, and a brilliant postdoc showed me how to run competition assays. So you could see which mutations made it most favorable and which mm -hmm. mutations made it least favorable. And from that, you could infer how the repli DNA replication process was working. Right. And just the simplicity of the experiment combined with how you were revealing these profound truths really spoke to me and really made me want to carry on in, mm. in research. So that was a really interesting moment. Um, but then why R&D? Um, and why not just carry on being a, a, a why drug R&D and why not yes. a pure scientist? And I think you know, I'm, I'm really inspired by my, my family on this point, but all of my family are involved in, you know, public service jobs. Mm -hmm. They're, they're all, you know, they're not there to, to make money. They're all involved in vocational work that helps people. Um, and I, I really want to be able to help people too. Um, yeah. So I don't just want to be studying things for their own 
at stake. I've got a real drive to study things that can actually make medicine and make an impact on patients. So that's that's tied in all the way through. Um, you know, a reason why I'm so motivated with what we're doing at Reflection is, you know, hearing patient journeys in uh, beta neuron disease. It's a really horrible condition. It, it's mm-hmm. such a thief. It, it it robs families of this person in their life, in yeah. the prime of their life often. And the idea that okay, you know that drug discovery is a tough business and, and have low percentage chances of success at the end of the day, but the idea that you could be part of helping solve that problem is incredibly motivating and mm. is why I think I'm really driven to drug R&D because, you know, how many other industries can you wake up and think oh, I could help thousands of people today? Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. Um, and I think, you know, the more we have these conversations, the more it comes back to a moment where people saw the impact on patients or, or a series of moments where, you know, they connected with the, the effects of a disease and, and yeah. sort of this mission was born to, to try and treat that. Um, exactly. So take us from there. So from Oxford, tell us about what was next. Yeah, so I, 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 um, I hopped over to Cambridge to do my master's and my PhD. Mm. Um, and I, I worked with two brilliant um, PhD supervisors, um, David Lomas and Evan Reed. And I, I focused mainly on cell biology and neurodegeneration because those two things I just find fascinating. I, yeah. I love how cells work and how you can engineer cells and um, see how they, they operate on that, that fundamental level. And I also, I really love neuroscience as well. And again, you know, you, you press me on that and I would just say, because it's cool, because it's interesting, <laughs> you know, like, um, and, and also from a family link, you know, my, my grandmother, sadly passed away with Alzheimer's disease I see. and again it's it's horrible condition and we don't have anything you know think how much cancer research has progressed over mm. the past 50 years and now think how much Alzheimer's research has, has progressed over the past 50 years and, and it, the difference is stark um, so I was very motivated to study neurodegenerative conditions um, and study cell biology and I, I had I had riotously good fun like it, it was great I mean PhDs are very challenging for people and, and yeah. very tough and I really had some tough low moments um, but on the other hand I, I had some real highs as well and um, you know you, you emerge blinking out of the dark room with a western blot film in your hand and you know <laughs> that you you've just seen something that no one else has seen yes. before ever and that's exciting and that high keeps you going through another three or four months of drudgery of, of failed experiments so that was really exciting but Whilst it was incredibly exciting, I had a very um, formative moment in the middle of my PhD. I think it was in my middle of my second year, um, because at the Cambridge Institute of Medical Research, where I, I did my PhD, we had a really great canteen where everyone would eat together, and mm. it was very common to have professors eating side by side with uh, with, with their groups, and you, we often moved and so merged groups and it, it was really great to to have that kind of collaborative um atmosphere and mm-hmm. it, was, it wasn't a, i know i've been to some other institutes where it's very closed um but this was very open and very um collaborative and it was brilliant but it allowed you to look out across the cafeteria and see everyone from the institute there in one one sweep of your your gaze yes um and i i remember one day just looking across and tallying up like quick like population distribution in my head of the ages of the people there 
Okay, yeah. Right. And you have this big chunk of like 22 to 25 year olds who are doing their PhDs. Mm -hmm. And then you had a big chunk of like 25 to 30, 33, 34 year olds who are postdocing. Mm -hmm. And then you had a gap. <laughs> and then you had this little bobble of like late 50s, early 60s, right. you know, 50, 50, 55, 60 people who were the PIs. Yes. And I thought, where are all the people in the middle? Where do they go? Yeah. Where do they go? Where have they gone? Yeah. And it, it made me start looking up statistics on like the number of PhDs to the number of tenured professors. Mm. And I was like, oh, it's the pyramid scheme. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it was really stark. It was really, mm. and it was, um, it was a wake up call because you realize, well, look, um, if I want to pursue this as a career, Number one, it, you know, I already knew it would be very hard work and you have to, yeah. you have to be one of the very best. And that's, I, everyone who gets there has worked very hard and they're one of the very best. Yes. But I think particularly since, the, say, the 1980s to now, the numbers of people who are PhDs has expanded massively. The number of PI positions just hasn't changed. Right, okay. So before, if you were the hardest working and the most talented, you'd probably become a PI. Mm -hmm. Whereas now, if you're the hardest working and most talented, you get to get put into a hat of other names of hardworking, talented people, and they'll draw one out of every four out. Yes. And that was terrifying, because unlike, um, say, if you're a lawyer, you can go off and be a lawyer, and if you don't become a high court judge, well, you're still a lawyer. Yeah. But if you're an academic scientist, if you don't become a PI, well, you have to stop. And you might be in your mid forties when you stop. Like the yes. carousel is going to stop at some point and spit you out. Yes. Um, and at that point, I was like, "Well, I want to help people. I want to do translational things. I'm really driven. You know, my plan was well, if I stay in academia, I can found a lab, do loads of translational research, and then spin it out into a company in fifteen years' time. But then you look at that and you're like, this is incredibly unstable. Like mm. you might get spat out of the carousel in five years, ten years, fifteen years. You don't know when, and you don't really have control over that." I'd much rather have control over my own destiny. And therefore, I'd much rather work in, I'd much rather do what I want to do anyway, which is work yeah. in the drugs industry. And yeah, I might as well leave now. Why wait five years or 10 years to be yeah. spat out without you, you know, without any control? So I'll leave now. Yes. Um, and the, the way I did that was um, I actually took another postdoc, but with the Alzheimer's Research UK Drug Discovery Institute in Cambridge to gain drug discovery experience. So that mm -hmm. was my. I know a lot of people have different routes out of academia, but that's the one I took. It was a bit of a soft landing, take another postdoc, but this time a postdoc that will teach me through yeah. discovery experience. It gets you that step closer, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and that was fantastic. Um, I got to work with um, a brilliant uh, guy who ran the place called John Skidmore, uh, James Deuce, the head of biology as well, mm -hmm. direct manager. Um, and they, they were fantastic. Uh, David Wimpen as well gave me awful lot of advice but it really gave me this solid grounding in, in how do you take an academic project and actually turn it into a drug discovery effort yeah and that transition is a big transition it's a really different world um yeah yeah no it is and it, it's, it's an interesting point that you make i think i think a lot of people get to that point in their academic career some of them relatively early as you did that that they realize these numbers don't quite stack up because you're talking about a group of quite analytical people right yeah um i think something that i hear quite a lot and i'd be interested in your experience on this is that um it's difficult to see what the route 
to do something else is. Um, because there's this whole concept of anything outside of academia being an alternative career. Um, and You've failed, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> no, you might, you might be doing something more interesting on a higher wage and a more stable path, but you failed still. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and there's a perception of that yeah and yeah. you know what it's one of the reasons that we started this podcast is to sort of highlight yeah. some of those alternatives but yeah. was there anything that helped you to sort of see that path through or anything that that you found useful I I mean firstly geography um, mm. being in Cambridge helps because you've got AstraZeneca on your doorstep uh, sure. Medimmune, Medimmune on your doorstep I mean we, we spoke before we hit the record button about your your brilliant chat you had with Jane Osborne but Having people like that kicking around the Cambridge ecosystem is really inspiring to people, right. right? Because you see these academic researchers who've been able to transition. Now, if you're sitting in um, academia and you know you could be in Bristol or Bath or Leeds and be in a brilliant university campus, but that brilliant industrial science is not at your fingertips. Yeah, right. So I think we're very lucky in in Cambridge and formally formally, if you say you're in Manchester. Um, near AstraZeneca's campus, for example, or if you're near Stevenage, where GSK are, mm -hmm. I think it's just an accident of geography that as a result, you've got all of these brilliant scientists who, are, who have forged a career in industry yes. really close, so you can speak to them. So that really helps because you, you get to lift the curtain behind academia and see that there's a life beyond academia and that there are all of these incredibly interesting, useful jobs that are just crying out for your transferable skill set. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. I, I think it's, an, you know, it's a really good point. And I think a lot of the companies, not so much companies like AstraZeneca these days, but there are a lot of companies that have come out of the universities as well, right? So there are a lot of people who still have those academic links that you can perhaps lean on. And um, there, is, exactly. there is quite a unique ecosystem around Cambridge. Exactly. And, and I guess if you're, so firstly, if you're in one of those locations where you've got drip companies yeah. around, it's, it, Firstly, speaking to those people is fantastic to, to allow you to, to see that. But if if you're not in those areas, what what I found very useful, because I was also looking at jobs um, in other locations as mm -hmm. well, was looking at alumni and looking at alumni from your from your uh, grad program and seeing where they've gone. Um, yes. LinkedIn was fantastic for me for this, you know, in this moment of well, crikey, where does everybody go? <laughs> My first port of call was LinkedIn and typing yeah. in, you know, like um, PhD uh, medical research hitting enter and then just seeing where everybody is and and then if anyone's an alumni of your institution get in touch with them ask them questions mm. and that can be incredibly useful um, and it can it can really help show the as we quote alternative careers but it's like eighty percent of PhDs go into these alternative <laughs> careers so how alternative are they you know? well true true and you know it uh, I'm sure you found this as well but you. Uh, I think you typically see that people are quite willing to help, right? And they're quite willing to have yeah, that conversation. Absolutely. absolutely. I mean, it, I received so much useful advice from people mm. who, you know, were working in AZ or um, in startups around, mm. uh, for example, a, a previous um, postdoc of uh, mine had gone off to a startup company uh, in the local area. So it was amazing to speak to him and speak about how he found startup life versus academia and, um, I think it can be very scary when academia is all you've known. It's yeah. very hard to imagine what life's like outside of that system. Yeah. You become very institutionalized <laughs> whilst you're there. Um, and so, yeah, I, the, the advice I'd have is just talk to people, just keep talking to people. And it's amazing because I think you, 
within academia, you see your options narrowing, and then by talking to people, you see them opening up again, and all yeah, these okay. different jobs opening up. Makes sense. And then, so you've gone and done this this um, postdoc to get this drug discovery experience. Clearly, a good move, and there are a number of these sort of. <laughs> nearly said halfway houses then that's probably the wrong <laughs> term <laughs> there are a number of these institutions that um that are somewhere they, they straddle the gap between academia and industry right yeah um so so certainly i think it's a good stepping stone to to take that step but then i suppose there's then still a jump to starting a company doing something exactly. very commercial so so talk us through that next bit yeah exactly and you kind of describing it as a halfway house is, is a good way of doing it actually because whilst they've got the the rigor and the drug discovery of industry mm. they've not got the for-profit motive because you know they're funded by a charity and they're there to take academic projects and turn them into something that an indus industry might want to pick up they're, right. they're filling a gap yes. in the market that exists between universities and industry so yeah. it's, it's a good description of what they do um but yeah, there's a big jump there to then founding your own company. So yeah. how did that happen? Um, so a little bit of science. And I'm, I've am i always been fascinated by protein folding. Um, and that's one reason why I loved working at uh, the Drug Discovery Institute in, in Cambridge for Alzheimer's research. Because, yeah, I was really interested in how protein folding works um, and how disposal of these proteins is um, really key to mm. the progression of these diseases. As a, as a result, um, it was really interesting to be at ARUK at the Drug Discovery Institute because they were really focused on how um, protein disposal works in the brain and how we could augment that process in order to help ameliorate the, the condition. Right. However, I am also really fascinated in immunology and I'm really interested in how immunology and neuroscience intersect mm -hmm. because it turns out, you know, if, if we went back 10 years, you'd have said, well, the brain is an immunoprivileged site. Um, you don't get infiltration of peripheral immune cells into the brain and it works very differently there. Whereas now we're finding you do get um, right. crosstalk between your peripheral and central nervous uh, central um, system in terms of immunity, mm -hmm. and also Im immune processes are absolutely key in terms of learning and memory, uh, things like synaptic pruning, things like development, and immunity has been linked to things all the way through from like dementia, schizophrenia to Alzheimer's. So immunity is absolutely key when we want to discuss neurodegeneration yeah now as i say at aruk they have this strategic focus on protein folding and i, I don't think that's wrong i think that's something we need to look into mm -hmm. but i was really excited by neuroinflammation and i really wanted to explore it and i mentioned before when i founded this um company there wasn't really anyone doing t-reg therapy for neurodegeneration right, right? There wasn't anywhere for me to do. I couldn't go and apply for a job somewhere. Yes. So at that point, I was thinking, well, I think that this could be the cure for Alzheimer's. I think this could be the cure for neurodegeneration and no one is doing it. Mm -hmm. And I remember um, having this conversation with a, a very good friend of mine who's called John Holtby. Um, he's set up a couple of companies before. And we were um, watching a sport, a sporting event of some kind and having a beer. And I was like, oh, well, my plan is, you know, I'll, I might go um, into industry. I'll do a couple of 
like senior scientist roles, I'll gain some experience and then in 10 years I'll set up a company and do this thing. It's like, are you mad? You've had the idea. <laughs> do it now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you were if you were sitting in, you know, Stanford or something like that, um, there are 22-year-olds going off and forming companies, and you're sitting here with a PhD and two postdocs, and you think you're not experienced enough. What are you doing? Um, and it was a good wake-up call because if if no one else does it, when is it going to happen? Um, and it was a good kick up the backside, really, and it, it got me looking around um, and, and eventually um, allowed me to find Deep Science Ventures, which is the next chapter of the story. Yes, yes. And it's, it's a really good point, though. I think as well, in, in, some, in a field like drug discovery, there's a lot of smart people in that field. If you wait 10 years, there's a good chance that somebody else might stumble across this idea as well, right? Exactly. Seize the day. And I, I think as well... Um, maybe this is something a bit as being a bit British as well, but we don't, we don't push ourselves forward. And mm. especially because we've been through an academic system, we're weirdly hierarchical. Mm-hmm. We don't think we're hierarchical, but we are very mm. hierarchical. And it's like, how dare you a PhD student disagree with a professor? Yeah. And we have that system. And especially in the UK, I think we, we do a very good job in terms of PhD education and making these incredibly uh, smart people who can do research, who've got this incredible raft of transferable skills from analysis to creativity to to problem solving. But what we don't do very well is make people confident because if there's anything that will make you humble and make you feel like you're rubbish at stuff, a PhD is it. (laughs) Yes, I can see that. I can see that. Constant failure and constant, you know, experiments going right. I mean, you're enti- if the experiments worked all the time, it wouldn't be a PhD because it, it would be trivial. You're right. always put on projects where it fails all the time. Mm-hmm. And then when you move on to drug discovery, it fails all the time, right? right. Because that's the, that's the nature of the job. Um, so I think it's interesting that we, I, I think people need to be confident in mm-hmm. their own skill set. Because if you've been through that process, if you've been through a PhD, you've been through postdocs, you've worked in drug discovery, you have this huge raft of skills and you need to believe in yourself. Yes. No, I, I completely agree. So you, you touched on it there. You then, So you went to spend some time at, at Deep Science Ventures. Um, clearly, you know, a strong scientific thread running through that organization, but any venture organization is a very commercial place to be. Um, so tell us a bit about that. Absolutely. Um, again, from um, from that kind of halfway house of ARUK, I describe it again as a bit of a soft landing. Okay. You know, we were we were going to a. You know, I, I went off to a venture firm, um, but the people there are just so committed to just changing the world mm. and making the world better that I felt like I really fit in immediately yeah um they really wanted to invent new things they wanted to do new things but everything they were doing they were wanting to do it because it was a good idea that would help people um and whether that's you know a new type of insulation that's more carbon friendly or whether it was um you know ways of creating ground source heat pumps or whether it was um on the scientific side of creating medicines yeah it was so driven to do do these kind of deep tech ideas that would actually help people that mm-hmm. me coming along with my self-therapy idea really fit into that, you know, really nicely and really smoothly. It, it was a culture shock. Um, it was it was a culture shock to be commuting to London on 
a very tiny stipend every day. Like there was, um, you know, it, life became a lot less comfortable for, mm. for six months or so. Um, and it, it was tough compared to the structure and routine of working in the drug discovery lab to suddenly being in this incredibly creative space where you're given six months to fully flesh out a business plan and a company idea. Right. And if you make it, they'll fund you. If they don't make it, that's it, you're done. Right. Um, so you, it was precarious and it was tough, but it was incredibly fun. And you get to speak to many other life science entrepreneurs there at the same time um, that really, you know, builds your ideas and stress tests them. You, you present them to investors and get their feedback and it really strengthens your plan and it goes from oh i've got this scientific plan to actually building a business plan um which yes. is a big transition and a big learning point yes yeah so this was this was something i was particularly interested in talking to you about tim because um th there are i think a lot of transferable skills that that phd and re phds and researchers have that can be applied to a business in terms of in terms of planning in terms of analysis yeah. in you know there's a huge yeah. range of different things but there are differences, of course. Um, and I guess, you know, a, an organization like Deep Science Ventures, one of the advantages of working with someone like that is they give you access to people who are real experts in those areas where perhaps you're not, right? Yeah. Um, but but what what were some of the, the the key learns for you? What were some of the things that, that were the biggest realizations? What, t talk us through that sort of, I guess, that, that that learning journey that you went on as much as anything else. So I'll give one, one good example, which is um, we had to learn about healthcare economics. Right. right? We had to learn about qualies, quality adjusted life years. Mm -hmm. So if we make a medicine that's gonna make someone live for one extra year, um, the, roughly speaking in the broadest possible terms, the NHS is willing to pay 30,000 pounds okay. for, that, for that drug. Um, and then you can alter that. So if it's going to give you half your quality of life for a year, that's worth £15,000. Mm -hmm. If it's going to give you full quality of life for two years, it's worth £60,000 and so on. So we had to then think really deeply, well, crikey, you know, if we're going to make a cell therapy for the neurodegeneration, that could be very expensive. What benefit are we going to get from it? And we need to present a very solid healthcare economics mm. plan in order to even get this off the ground in the first place. So that was a really interesting process to go through where you start looking at different conditions and looking at different pricing structures. And you see how, for example, we've got a ton of cancer therapies on the market and no Alzheimer's therapies on the market. It's because the cancer therapy is really easy to justify from a quality point of view. Right. And it's really easy to test in a clinical trial because yeah. you can see how much longer the patient Right. So it, it's much easier in some fields than others with the system we've got. And that was a real eye opener and a real education. Yeah. And I suppose as well, the, the age range of people that contract that get cancer, you get a lot of younger people getting cancer. Right. So I suppose the, the... I mean, you're, you know, you're getting like what, 40 qualities, 50 qualities. Into that. So mm -hmm. it really changes the dynamic of, of what's going on. Um, so that that was really, um, really interesting. I mean, it's just one. Um, you know, one one element of what I yeah. learned, but, but to encapsulate that jump from it's all about the science to actually, mm -hmm. you know, it's about other things. I think that encapsulates it really well. Building on from that, you've then got to 
stop thinking like a scientist and start thinking like an investor. Mm-hmm. Your job now is to get investors to put money in the company. Right. You know, as a CEO of a startup, your number one job is to get the company funded and get, mm-hmm. get money in the bank. So you've got to shift your mindset into that of an investor. And for that reason, I'm incredibly grateful that whilst I was at DSV, I got the opportunity to sit on the other side of the table and evaluate new opportunities coming in right. uh, that involve neuroscience. And then you get to hear the backroom discussion that happens afterwards, you as the subject matter expert and then as the investors. That was invaluable experience. That was gold, you know, golden, because then you, you really get to see what those discussions are like yeah. on the other side of the table. Yes, I can imagine. Anything particularly surprising there that you found? So good science is incredibly important, yeah. but it is one one leg on the uh, on the tripod, if mm-hmm. you like, or on the, on the chair, and it's very unstable just on its own. It, it's absolutely vital, and without it, yeah. you know, nothing happens. But it may not be that surprising, but it's blindingly obvious. But you know, the strength of your team, the strength of your business plan, and also the strength of you know how this thing's going to hit the market matter just as much as the good science. There's no point having amazing science if you have a shaky team and a shaky path to market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's interesting, isn't it? I suppose you know the the market side of it. I think there are. They, you know, there are researchers out there who would turn their nose up at that and they'd think, you know, that that shouldn't be a consideration. But the reality is you're not going to get through the clinic if there's not a market need. You're not going to get the drug reimbursed if there's not a market need, right? So even exactly. if you've got great science, it's never going to help anyone. Exactly. And I, I have two things on this point. So, like, mm. the first thing is you can be an amazing scientist but if you don't communicate that science well, you might as well have not bothered. Right. Because there's no point to doing science unless we tell each other what we've discovered. Mm-hmm. So that's that's firstly very important. But secondly, within healthcare, I think there's the money element is not to be dismissed because it focuses minds exactly as you've said. There is a finite amount of resource in any healthcare system, yeah. whether it's a publicly funded one like the UK or whether it's mostly private insurance to the US there is a finite amount of money that's going to be spent on drugs. And we have a responsibility to ensure that we do the most good mm-hmm. with that finite resource. So we might turn our noses up, oh, well, why aren't you curing that disease? Because, you know, you've not put it, you know, just because it's not going to make enough money, we're not going to cure that disease. Right. Well, because the money is going to be spent on another person. Yes, And you need to win that. If you want your treatment to go ahead, you need to win that argument and you need to make sure that in the design and development phase of your product, you're developing a product that's economically viable because otherwise you won't help people. Yes. Yeah, it's a good point. And I suppose as we hear about all the time, it's not as if, you know, if you take the NHS, for example, it's not as if they're just sitting on a big pile of extra cash, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that they're just going, oh, no, we just won't spend this huge stack yeah. of cash. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you're spending money on something, it means they're not spending money mm. on something else. Yeah, no, interesting. Um, so you obviously, you got through that process, you were successful <laughs> with that process. Um, and then it's been, I suppose, uh, almost two and a half years, as you said, you've, you've gone from sort of a concept through to almost, you know, at the point where you're getting some in vivo data. Um, highlights, challenges, surprises. I'm sure there's lots. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, 
I'll give you a couple of highlights and then a big a big challenge we mm. faced. Um, so, um, oh, firstly, big big highlights I've got to say having my co-founder Olga come on board was amazing. Uh, mm. So she's fantastic. Uh, did the PhD in the same building as me actually, although right. we worked in different units. Um, but um, and we met through a sports team rather than through work. But mm. um, she spent several years in industry um, in the Cambridge biotech sector. So having her on board with her experience and her knowledge of, of uh, being involved in biotech has been just fantastic. Um, so big highlight there. And every time we build a team, we get a new advisor on board. Um, you know, Paul Wallace, as an example, Caroline Zapadko, um, and uh, Greg Sando as well. And Greg founded Cellmedica, um, mm. world of experience in the cell therapy world. So highlights is building the team. And when you get people in a room, and you sit around and you're looking and everyone is absolutely hammering it and doing great work and building things forward. I sometimes have a surreal moment where I sit back and think, gosh, none of this would be happening if I, if I hadn't had an idea <laughs> two years ago. And now all these brilliant people are in a room trying yeah. to make it happen. And that that feels amazing, but it's also really surreal at the same time. That mm -hmm. the, the dream has become a reality and people are invested in this and really want to push it forward. So that's been a big highlight. Another big highlight has been um, getting an Innovate UK smart grant, um, which are highly competitive. Um, it's, you know, these smart grants aren't just handed down to life science enterprises. They're literally any idea right. you can apply for an Innovate UK smart grant. They're always oversubscribed by an incredible amount. So to get through and get that award was, was really fantastic, mm -hmm. really amazing. Um, so big highlights there were, you know, getting money into the company, getting private investment into the company, building the team. And then as the, the data starts rolling in, we're showing that the receptors we design are actually working in regulatory T cells. That's that's incredibly exciting. And you, yeah. you're showing you've actually got a product that's ready to go into an animal. Um, challenges, uh, you always end up with challenges and it's always tough. Um, I think that the challenges have changed over time. Okay. So initially the challenges were well, no one else is doing this. We don't think it's going to work, and this is mad. And from investors, <laughs> and now it's right. well, well, you know, this field's hotting up. So, how are you different? How have you differentiated yourselves? How are you better than everybody else? So it's mm -hmm. it's gone from this is mad and it will never work to, well, how are you better than this? We we already know this will work. How is it better? So, right, whatever question you get from investors, it'll always be two steps ahead. Mm -hmm. And if you answer that question two steps ahead, they're going to ask another question that's two steps ahead. So you always have to be adapting your learning. You know, initially it's learning about basic science and how to run these things. Then you're learning about like cap tables and mm -hmm. investment in. Then you've got to think, okay, well, I've, I've now done my seed stage. So now what does a series A look like? Great. I now know what a series A looks like, but what does an exit look like or a series B? Or, you know, do we go to private equity or do we go to the public markets or do we go to venture? And you've always got to be thinking ahead. And whenever you satisfactorily answer a question, investors are smart and they'll look two years further ahead and they'll ask right. you another set of questions. So that that's a big challenge. Mm. The other challenge has just been biology. You know, we want to work on aged um, animals for our experiments. And whenever we've had a problem with those animals and you have to start again, well, then you've got to age them up again. So that's been right. that's been an issue, and that's that's extended our timeline. And especially in COVID, when you can't have multiple people in the lab doing multiple projects going on, that's been challenging. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of challenges, that's that's where I'd say they, they exist. Yes. Yes. Good point. Because despite all the business challenges, you still have the biological problems to solve as well. And that's the thing. Yeah, you can be, you can be sitting at your desk working on a business plan for mm. your Series A, which might be, you know, in the future, you, you know, we're, we're, we're going to be raising seed after April, but we're already working on a business plan for the Series A, right? So you're, you're yeah. in a financial model, you're in a looking to the future model, you're talking to recruiters about potential hires you might bring in. And then all of a sudden, you've got to switch tracks within 30 seconds mm-hmm. and jump onto a call with a mouse biologist and talk about some problems in the in vivo um, you know, system you're thinking of doing. And you've just got to switch tracks incredibly quickly and yes. be really mentally agile. So it's incredibly stimulating, but it's tiring when you're doing mm. that all day, every day. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think this may be something we've, or some of this may be something we've already touched on because we've, we've kind of hit a few of these points, I think, through the conversation. But um, in terms of, you know, the people out there who might be in the same boat you were in two or three years ago, um, for, who may have an idea or, or the seeds of an idea or a concept at least, um, as you say, you know, particularly in the UK, we're not always the best at making the most of those ideas. And um, I guess people have a lot of ideas, but not all of them get acted on. <laughs> yeah. But if people are at that point, advice that you'd give them, things that you wish you'd known, Tim, what would you say yeah. to people? Well, firstly, a broad point is, you know, ideas are cheap. It's action that yeah. really changes the world. Um, and it's the, it's the hard work and effort you put in to actually turn something into a reality that makes it valuable, that makes it worth something. The, mm-hmm. the idea itself is, is the seed. And then you've got to do a lot of watering and pruning and growing before you, you end up with yes. a tree, right? Um, in terms of advice, um, if you're within a university structure when you have that idea, your university tech transfer office is, is a great place to go. Mm-hmm. And spinning things out of a university is a really great route. Um, there is a disadvantage there on IP. You've always got to think about IP ownership. And if you spin out through your university, you're going to have a big chunk of IP taken away from you. And you've got to decide whether it is worth losing that IP up front to then make your idea into a reality. Um, But don't be afraid of that, because if if you can spin out of your university and they do believe in you and want to put money in you, that's going to be a big advantage going forward when you go to other investors in the future. Mm -hmm. It has the stamp of authenticity and authority from your university. So that's that's incredibly important. Um, and then the other advice I'd have is, is yes, be, you know, have confidence and believe in yourself whilst getting advice and feedback from as many experienced people as possible. Yeah. And those, those experienced people aren't more people in academia necessarily. Those experienced people are investors, um, previous founders of startups, mm-hmm. um, be, you know, people like that, um, and stress test your idea as brutally and as harshly as possible, as early as possible. Yes, I suppose it's asking those questions that you don't want, you don't really want the answer to, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, if you're, if you're trying to avoid a particular question, that's the one you need to be asking. <laughs> This is why a PhD is a great transferable skill because you yeah. should always be stress testing your idea and asking the questions you don't want to ask in your PhD. It's just in your PhD, you're doing that by conducting experiments. When you're thinking of spinning out a company, you're doing that by stress testing it with investors. 
um, and that's a, that's the difference. But it's yeah. the same process. Yes, makes sense. And, and so you've talked about, um, I guess, the immediate next steps for reflection and the data that's coming, and and we have our fingers crossed for you. And we wish you the best of luck with that. Um, what, what does the the rest of I guess twenty twenty one look like? What does what does what's next for you all? Yeah, so it's it's going to be super exciting. Um, we're getting this in vivo data coming very soon. Um, and we've got some more data arriving that's really exciting from different academic collaborations we've got mm -hmm. going on. So firstly, just from a scientific point of view, it's going to be so exciting seeing kind of those ships come home with this this data on board that we get to we get to see. Um, yes. and so exciting to show the, the product developing. But then from a business point of view, um, we'll be launching our seed. Um, at that point, we'll be we'll be raising um, around a million pounds um, mm -hmm. once that data arrives, um, and that's going to be exciting because we'll be building the company and we'll be getting ready for a Series A um, next year. So it's going to be exciting time. Um, if the data comes in and it comes in good, then we're going to be expanding the team. We're going to yep. be growing the team, and it, it's going to change the company, right? And at this stage, you know, it's myself and Ola with people helping us with a lot of work outsourced with a lot of great advisors. But once we get that in vivo data in, well, then suddenly, you know, you're, you're, you're hiring a lot more staff, the team composition changes, you know, your location changes, like just so much changes very quickly. And mm -hmm. we've been used to that process all the way through. You run the company we were running two years ago is a different company to the company we're running today. Yes. And the company we're running today will be very different to the company we're running a year from now. Yes. Um, so that's exciting, but it's going to be a very transformative year for us. Well, we will be keeping a close eye on it, Tim. Best of luck. Thank, thank you, you very, very much, much for your time. Good yeah, to see you. Yeah, thank you, Tom. Thanks, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, I hope, hope you enjoyed it. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us on Careers in Discovery. And don't forget to subscribe for more insight into the world of drug discovery and R&D. Do take a look at our sponsors, Singular Talent, and their mission to make hiring better for companies and individuals in drug discovery and R&D. You can find them at www.singulartalent.io. See you next time.